Once again, this is the second Sunday, the second message in our sermon series. He said what? Looking at some of the unexpected, as we just heard, sayings of Jesus that also reveal uncommon grace and might need a little unpacking before we can get to the grace. Now, last week in the message, I said that there are some things in Christianity and sometimes I think we should say Christianities because there are probably as many forms of Christianity as there are Christians, but suffice it to say, there are some things that Christianity says about Jesus that Jesus does not say about himself. There are some things Christianity affirms about Jesus that Jesus does not say or affirm about himself. And, and after the service last week, somebody came up to me and said, uh, Matt, that was a really provocative thing to say. Do you think maybe you could unpack that a little? So I want to start there and say a little bit more about that. Here are three things that Christianity or some of the main things we hear in Christianities about Jesus that Jesus does not affirm or say about himself in the Gospels, which is all that we have to go on. Number one, Jesus does not say, only those who accept me as personal Lord and Savior will go to heaven and everybody else will go to uh, that other bad place. Jesus doesn't say that. This phrase does not occur anywhere in the Gospels, in the New Testament. You'll find it exactly zero times in the Bible. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, he was talking about a present reality, a lived experience, the kingdom that was breaking into the world through himself, not a post-mortem afterlife experience. And when Jesus talked about hell, which he did on occasion, and by the way, Jesus didn't speak much about the afterlife in general, but when he talked about hell, once again, it wasn't an afterlife experience. The word for hell was Gehenna. And Gehenna was a place, an actual place, outside of Jerusalem where child sacrifice happened at one time. Child sacrifice being perhaps the most evil and horrific thing that we can imagine. And there's some archeological evidence to suggest that Gehenna, this place of child sacrifice, also became a dump where people would bring their trash and burn it. And it was said that it, the, the trash was being arriving perpetually and burning perpetually, and the fires never went out and were unquenchable. So when Jesus says things like, if you are angry with your brother or your sister, you are in danger of the fire of Gehenna, that awful place where really bad things happen and we burn up our trash. That's what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of Gehenna or hell as our translation. Now, there are a few times when Jesus does speak about the afterlife. Uh, he does go there. It's not a major aspect of his teaching, but particularly in a few parables, parables being stories that Jesus told to make a point, kind of teaching device, Jesus does talk very clearly about the afterlife, those who go to a really a place of blessing and those who go to a place that is extremely uncomfortable. And those, they're both parables, one of them is the sheep and the goats, which you can find in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. And here, Jesus is talking about the end of time, the fulfillment of time, when the people, the nations will be separated, divided, 
like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The goats uh, go to the bad place, the sheep go to the good place, and why do the goats go to the bad place? Is it because they didn't believe the right things? Is it because they didn't make this personal confession about Jesus? Is it, was it a matter of theology? No, it's not that they didn't believe the right things, it's that they didn't live in the right way. They didn't do the right things. They didn't clothe the naked. They didn't feed the hungry. They didn't visit those or stand up for those in prison or those who are sick. That's why uh, they basically live for themselves while the sheep did those things and receive eternal blessing and reward. It wasn't dependent upon belief. It was dependent upon behavior. Now, it, it might be that if you know anything about, if you know something about the New Testament, if you've studied it for a long time, and if you have any background in more conservative expressions of Christianity, there might at this point starting to be bubbling up to the top of your mind or ringing like an alarm bell a particular verse. And that verse is probably this one. John chapter 14, verse 6, which says, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this appears to be an open and shut, slam dunk proof text to demonstrate that only Christians go to heaven and everybody else goes to that other very uncomfortable place. Well, not so fast. This verse, as you'll notice, first of all, doesn't mention heaven or hell as some post-mortem destination at all. Doesn't even mention hell at all, hell, heaven or hell in, in, in any sense. And when Jesus is talking here, he's talking about unity with God, unity with the Father in the present through him. And because uh, Jesus defines his way, truth, and life all over scripture as love. If we love one another, we know God, we see God, we make God real, we can easily retranslate and accurately retranslate this verse as love is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to divine love, and the gospel of John tradition defines God as God is love. No one comes to divine love except through love. The only way to know divine love is to practice divine love, to live in love. The only way to love is love. The, the ends and the means are the same. According to the larger body of John's theology, this is a perfectly legitimate way to translate that verse. So the next time somebody hauls out John 14, 6 to say, ah, see, right here it says only Christians go to heaven. Well, they want to hold on. <laughs> Let's really look at everything that's going on, not only in that verse and around it, but in the entire gospel of John. That's the first thing that Jesus, uh, that Christianity sometimes says about Jesus, that Jesus did not say about himself that the only way to heaven is through a particular confession of faith about me. Second, Jesus never said, I died on the cross in your place. Jesus sent me to die on the cross in your place. Not something that Jesus ever said. Last week, we looked at this meme right here of a clergy person explaining to a younger person uh, the entire, uh, what Christianity is all about. And he says, 
God gave birth to himself in order to kill himself as a sacrifice in order to appease himself so that we would no longer, he would no longer have to throw us into a fiery pit for all eternity because he made us in a way that was not up to his own very high standard. And, and while that's kind of a cartoon caricature, there are millions of Christians who believe this is what the gospel, this is what the gospel is all about. This is what Christianity is all about. This is what Jesus is all about. As if all of us are damned, all of us are marked for suffering and, and extreme punishment like crucifixion, but Jesus came in and took our place so we wouldn't have to and that we would literally be off the hook. That is a very predominant theology in Christianity. The problem is you won't find Jesus saying anything that suggests that sort of view or viewpoint. You won't find Jesus sort of comparing himself as if he's like the maiden, you know, who gets thrown into the volcano to appease the angry God so that the volcano won't erupt and burn all the villagers at the base of the volcano. That is simply not how Jesus understood his death. We will see Jesus talking about his death as leveraging salvation, as leveraging forgiveness, but it's not about him taking the hit from an angry, violent, vengeful God on our behalf. That is an abusive theology. And an abusive theology is ripe to be used abusively and, and it often has. The third thing uh, that Jesus didn't say is that Christianity often says is that Jesus never said, I am God. Jesus never said directly, I am God. Now this one I know is, might strike you as a bit controversial, but it's actually quite biblical. In fact, there are moments in scripture, in the gospels, where Jesus differentiates himself from God quite clearly. In the gospel of Luke, the, the gospel we're looking at today, somebody comes up to, to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus stops him right there and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's a pretty distinct line between himself and God. Now, in the Gospel of John, which is the, the latest gospel, the most poetic gospel, Jesus comes pretty close to saying that I am God. There's moments in John where he says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham, I am. Very close to saying, uh, asserting his divinity. But I read that as Jesus talking about his deep connection and unity with God. But Jesus stopped short of saying, well, that makes me God. Now, I am not uh, for a second trying to downplay or make an argument against the divinity of Jesus. I believe in the divinity of Jesus. I also believe in your divinity. But I don't, and I think Jesus had a much higher charge of divinity than, than anyone ever. But I would stop short of saying Jesus is God because Jesus stopped short of saying that he is God. So, okay, if, 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 if we can accept all that, and I'm not assuming that everybody does, but if we can accept this much, just to say that Jesus never said that those, you must accept me as personal Lord and Savior to go to heaven and not go to hell, or that he never said that he died on the cross in our place and never claimed to be God, why have those become like staples in so many expressions of Christianity? 
Well, that's a fascinating question, and, and one I encourage you to, to research. The history and formulation of doctrine is, uh, is a fascinating thing to study. But suffice it to say for now that these things continue to get perpetuated because we tend to look at Jesus through the lens of Christian doctrine and theology and religion instead of looking at religion and theology and doctrine through the lens of Jesus and what he said and what he was about. And maybe it's time to get that uh, realigned and in a different frame. So if none of those staples of Christian belief are supported by what Jesus said about himself, what is this all about? Like, what, what are we doing here? Good question. In fact, I think that is actually the question, and here's how I would uh, describe it. Here's how I would answer it. Jesus was a movement leader, a reformer, who experienced God working through him to usher in the kingdom of God and experience a blessing and forgiveness and grace that comes to all people equally, but was more easily embraced by those on the margins who had been excluded by the temple system. Jesus was passionate about God's love and forgiveness being available to anyone, which is why he is often so critical of religion with its conditions and stipulations and transactional mindset and tendency to exclude, which is why I think he would probably be horrified that God's unconditional love and forgiveness has been reinstitutionalized with a new set of required conditions, transactions, even including doctrine and belief. Now, not everyone liked this message of Jesus's. Not everybody liked his inclusive message and spirit. In fact, in the very first sermon that he gave, which we find in Luke's, uh, Luke chapter 4, we're now in chapter 12, way back in Luke 4, Jesus goes to his hometown to give his very first public sermon back to his hometown, back to his home synagogue, where the people remember him, you know, as a toddler running around the sanctuary with a drippy nose. You know, it's that kind of knowledge and history. And the sermon he gives blows them away and gets them extremely angry. He says, I have come to announce release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. And not just for us, not just for our people, not just for our nation, but even for Gentiles, for non-believers. And for that, his own people, the people in his synagogue that he saw him grow up, chase him to the edge of the cliff and are ready to throw him off the cliff. Now we're in chapter 12. And perhaps in the Jesus is sort of recalling that moment of his first sermon and how it almost got him killed as he is saying, gets to the passage where we are today when he says, do, you, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three, they will be divided. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which might remind us of Thanksgiving dinner over the past seven years or, or, or maybe more. 
it's jarring. It's really jarring to hear this from Jesus because we thought he was all about grace and forgiveness and inclusion for everyone. Well, yes, and that's exactly the problem. If you are invested in and benefiting from a system controlled by a few people at the top who are above the law, you are going to be threatened, most likely, by an egalitarian vision where everybody's life and worth and voice matter and are valued. If you are the one pushing back against a system of dominance, you will most likely be labeled divisive and probably a socialist too, right? And Jesus appears to be sort of like owning it. You say I'm divisive? Okay, I'm divisive. But if God's expansive love is divisive to you, that's a sad commentary on you. Here's how his divisive love is remembered a little later in the gospel in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners, welcomes sinners, and eats with them. Not only did Jesus have very unorthodox heretical theology, he had a habit of hanging out with tax collectors, with sex workers, and other so-called sinners. Divisive. If you've ever found yourself included and welcomed and embraced after years of getting quite the opposite message from your faith or family of origin and now you feel welcomed and you feel seen and you feel embraced, that's a Jesus moment. If you've ever felt burdened by your mistakes and the harm that you've caused and you suddenly hear a message of grace and forgiveness, that is also a Jesus moment. If you've ever felt, on the other hand, challenged to forgive someone for what they've done, and suddenly, maybe years later, you receive a grace to forgive, that is a Jesus moment. And if you've ever felt challenged to embrace and include someone who is outside your group, outside of your tribe, outside your nation, outside your normal, and suddenly you have the expansiveness of heart to embrace and welcome that person or those people, that is also a Jesus moment. Once there was a young person riding on a train. And as he rode there, sitting by himself, and across the aisle there, there was another man, an older man, and the older man, as he looked at this young man riding there on the train next to him, nearby, said, you look very troubled. Is, is something bothering you? And the young man said, well, I, I, it's just that I'm, I'm, I'm going home. And the older man said, oh, that's, that's wonderful. And he said, no, you don't understand. You see, the last time I was home, it was pretty rough. Some things were said, some harsh things were said to me. I was not seen as welcome for who I am. And I said some things that were also 
a horror that I wish I could take back. And I haven't been home in years. And just a few weeks ago, I wrote to my family and I said, I'm coming home. I want us to see if we can find a way to be family again. I wonder if you can see me and embrace me as I am. And, and I want to apologize for some of the things I've said and done. And I'm coming home on this day, but I need to know that it's going to be safe for me to go to the house and be together again. And so I I'm asking you to give a sign. And the older man said, well, what was the sign that you asked for? He's, and the young man said, well, I asked them to tie a pink banner around that large oak tree that's right by the station. They know exactly the one. And then I know if I see that pink banner at the train station, I'll know that it's safe for me to go home. And if not, I'll just get right back on the next train going the other way. And he says, sir, could, would you mind looking for me because I'm not sure I can do this my, on my own. And the older man said, okay, sure, yeah, sure. So we got up close to the window. As they were coming around the bend of the station, the older man tapped the younger man and said, young man, I think you need to see this for yourself. And there on that oak tree was a pink banner. But not only on that tree, but on every tree and on every sign, and on every lamppost. Anything where a pink piece of cloth could be tied, there was one. And the young man ran out of that train all the way back to his home. Jesus is that banner hung on a tree announcing grace and forgiveness and welcome to all, to me, to you, to everyone, right now. Amen. Ashe. Namaste.